Let's open our Bibles to John 14. As we are continuing to look at Jesus' great parting gift. He said to his disciples, Peace I give you, my peace I leave with you. The peace that I give is not as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. World War I was known as the Great War. It went on for four years and it cost millions and millions of lives. At the end of the war, a treaty was drawn up, the Versailles Treaty of 1919, between the Allies and Germany. This was the treaty that was to end all wars. This was the treaty that was to bring true peace to the world. There were limits that were placed on every nation concerning how many of this particular military armament and this particular battleship and what size what could not be exceeded. And yet you and I know that this war to end all wars, this treaty to give permanent peace, did not even last 20 years. There is a problem with peace. And we are going to spend a few minutes this evening looking at some of the aspects of the problem with peace. Again, Jesus said to his disciples, bearing in mind that this is the night when he will be betrayed, arrested, taken to two sham trials, and then in the early morning hours, sentence will be pronounced upon him. He will be beaten and traumatized brutally, and then taken out to be crucified. And in that context, he said to his disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Think about it. Think of what Jesus is facing. And yet he can say to his disciples, My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Now, as you and I know from our study of John chapter 14, this is the second time that Jesus has said to his disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. And we looked at that when we began our study of this chapter. But once again, think about it with me in light of what is about to happen. We are going to see, as this evening goes on, that Jesus' heart is deeply troubled. And he cries out to the Father in the garden, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me, and yet not as I will but as you will. And this goes on for three hours. 
as he endeavors to come to that place where he is fully trusting the will of the Father. Now, this is Jesus. This is the one who is equal with God. And yet, as Jesus has also said in this passage, my Father is greater than me. And once again, we have looked at that aspect. We're going to reference it again before the study of this paragraph is over. But remember that Jesus is our substitute. And as Isaiah has described, he is a man acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows. So Jesus understands what it's like to be troubled. He understands what it's like to be in a place where you are overwhelmed with concern, with anxiety, with consternation. And yet Jesus was able to retain his peace. And with complete composure, go through what was going to take place, what he had to face as he offered himself in atonement for you and for me. So Jesus has something that you and I need. He has a peace that can work through a troubled heart. He has a peace that can take him through all the difficulties that are before him. But what are we going to see with the disciples? Although Jesus has already told them, as he will emphasize here in this passage, what is going to take place, and even told them that before the night is over, all of them are going to abandon him. Yet, Armed with this foreknowledge, they are not able to be untroubled. They are unable to experience his peace. After his resurrection, where do we find them? Behind locked doors in fear. Jesus will appear to them and say, Don't be afraid. Peace be unto you. They don't have peace. There is a problem with peace. Isaiah 59 and verse 8. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks along them will know peace. I want you to especially notice the first and the last phrase of this verse. The way of peace they do not know, and no one who walks along them will know peace. So there is a way to peace, or a way of peace. But there is also a way that is thought to lead to peace, but if you walk along that path, you will never know peace. There is a problem. As we said last week, 
The very first impact of sin was the loss of peace. Adam and Eve lost their assurance and their peace of heart. They lost peace between one another and became perpetrators of blame. And they were thrust into a world that had lost its peace. And everything God said to them will be against you, not for you. As a result of their sin, their hearts were troubled at the realization of their nakedness. You remember, their eyes were opened and what? Were naked. And it wasn't a good thing. They felt vulnerable, inadequate, exposed. And so they tried to compensate for those feelings and sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When they heard the Lord God approaching, what did they do? The account tells us that they were afraid and they hid themselves. Why do we become afraid? Why, when a tornado is approaching, are we warned to take refuge? It's a threat. We are vulnerable to something that is greater than us. Now, with Adam and Eve, they were no stranger to the presence of God. They had a very intimate relationship with God. God would come and walk in the garden in the cool of evening, and he and Adam collaborated together on the naming of the animals. Their relationship was one that was transparent, it was open. But when sin came, it brought all of these things, these feelings of inadequacy, the vulnerability, we are naked, the feelings of shame, the feelings of fear, now they feel something about God that they've never felt before. He's a threat, and we need to hide ourselves. And so it is with sin. Sin produces these feelings. They are the result of our broken human nature, the result of our sin-infected human nature. When we feel these feelings and we try to compensate for them, we are trying to find a way of peace. We are trying to mitigate what we are feeling so that we don't feel so bad. We're covered up. We're not naked any longer. And yet those fig leaves were utterly inadequate for their vulnerability, and for their shame. In Ezekiel 13 and verse 10, God is speaking, and he said, Because they lead my people astray, saying, Peace, when there is no peace, and because 
When a flimsy wall is built, they cover it with whitewash. God was condemning those who gave these wonderful prophetic words. The people of God were terribly at odds with God. He had pronounced judgment upon them, and that judgment was irrevocable. And yet there were false prophets who assured everyone of peace. Don't believe the prophets like Jeremiah. Don't believe others. There's going to be peace. Peace when there is no peace. A flimsy wall covered with whitewash. It turns out that that's what the Versailles Treaty of 1919 was. A flimsy wall covered with whitewash. In Isaiah 39 and verse 8, Hezekiah is replying to the prophet. And he said, The word of the Lord you have spoken is good. In his thoughts, he's thinking, There will be peace and security in my lifetime. We're going to come back to Hezekiah's story in just a moment. The problem with the world's peace is that it's, well, it's the world's peace. Its efforts to acquire peace always fall short. The efforts of the Versailles Treaty, as well intended as they might have been, fell very short. And the world's efforts to acquire peace always fall short because they do not address the root issue, sin, and because it is not based on the reconciling, transforming work of the Prince of Peace. There were some nations that especially felt vindictive in their victory. When they came together and put together the Versailles Treaty. And they imposed upon Germany severe restrictions. And those severe restrictions created such hardship for the Germans and allowed Hitler to capitalize upon the injustices that the Germans felt had been imposed upon them by nations like Britain. And that allowed him to rise to power. It really was a flimsy wall covered with whitewash. And it did not deal with deeper issues. Supposedly, the restraints and the limitations were enough to prevent any nation from being able to carry out such an aggressive military action against another. But it didn't deal with deeper issues. The root issue is sin. And only the reconciling and transforming work of the Prince of Peace can deal with the root issue. 
What's interesting is that the same, what we will call, anti-peace dynamic, what is described here in Ezekiel 13, or what was happening in Hezekiah's heart. This anti-peace dynamic, this issue that does not address the root issues and thus causes problems, is at work in even believers. It's not just unbelievers. Jesus is talking to his disciples who would not have any peace that night, who would react to the threat with fear and self-preservation. Peter, who would adamantly and with oaths deny that he knew Jesus Christ. This same anti-peace dynamic is at work in believers. Our sin affected, we might also, also say infected, human nature is in conflict with our spiritual nature. And it causes war within us. And it leads us to act in ways that are the antithesis of what we have experienced in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, writing in Romans chapter 7, beginning with verse 21. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Verse 22. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. You and I are well familiar with what the Apostle Paul is writing. In our hearts, we delight in God. We delight to do His will. We delight in His law. We delight in the things of the Spirit. And yet we also find another dynamic at work within us, this anti-peace dynamic, this law of sin at work in our members. And the result is that our hearts are troubled or we feel exposed, we feel shameful. Or maybe we have a much more offending attitude and spirit, as did Hezekiah. This is a fascinating story. It's also one that needs to speak to our hearts. We remember Hezekiah as a deeply godly king. He went further than any other good king, like Josiah or Jehoshaphat, in restoring worship, in removing idols, in destroying the high places where people went to worship instead of coming to worship at Jerusalem. 
instead of worshiping God with God's people in the way that God had prescribed. There was a great revival under Hezekiah's spiritual leadership. He sent Levites through the towns teaching the people the word of God so that they would obey God and not come under God's judgment again. The worship was restored to the temple. The temple repaired. The Levites restored to their places of worship. The support that enabled the Levites to do the work at the temple was reinstituted. And the work of God went forward in a way that it had not since the time of Solomon. We are familiar with what happened when Sennacherib came against Jerusalem and how God brought this great victory about when Hezekiah brought the letter demanding surrender into the temple, laid it on the altar, and cried out to the Lord. And God acted that night, and the angel of the Lord destroyed the Assyrian army. When the people of Jerusalem got up the next day, there they were, the unconquerable, dominating empire, the Assyrians, all dead surrounding Jerusalem. Sennacherib fled back to Assyria. He went into the temple of his God, and there his own sons killed him. And then Hezekiah came to a point in his life when Isaiah came to see him with a message from the Lord. Get your house in order. You're going to die. And Hezekiah went to the Lord and said, Lord, please heal me. Don't cut my day short. And he asked the Lord for a sign when the Lord said that he would. And God caused the sun to move back on the sundial. And Hezekiah was healed. But during the 15 years longer that he lived, his son Manasseh was born. Manasseh did more than any other king of the southern kingdom of Judah to lead people into transgression against the Lord, offering as human sacrifices Hezekiah's grandchildren. But there was something more insidious that also took place. And we find the story in Isaiah 39. At that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of his illness and recovery. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine oil, his entire armory, and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, What did those men say? Where were they from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, What did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, 
Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And this was Hezekiah's response. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my lifetime. Isn't this an amazing response from Hezekiah? Something happened within Hezekiah's heart when he had his answer to prayer. God had said to him, set your house in order. Hezekiah did not want to accept that he was going to die. Like you and I, he felt that he knew better than the Lord. The Lord sees things that you and I don't see. The Lord sees things about us that we don't see. The Lord sees ways in which we are capable of acting. and, And we think we would never act that way. God saw this propensity for pride and arrogance in Hezekiah's heart. And even though Hezekiah had been greatly used by God, had brought about revival and an obedience to the Lord, a fear of the Lord, a reverence for the things of God, a faithfulness to God that Israel had not known for generations, yet God saw that there was still this root within him. And God knew what would happen if Hezekiah remained alive. Hezekiah did not want to accept what the Lord saw. He felt he knew better. And because Hezekiah had been so faithful to the Lord, the Lord responded to him. But what happened? Hezekiah's heart became arrogant, became so proud. And when the envoys from Babylon came, he showed them everything. Even taking these idol worshipers into the temple storehouses and showing them what was in the house of God. He allowed something in his heart that was so contaminating. He did something that he should not have done and at one point would never have thought of doing. 
I wonder if this is what sowed the seed in Manasseh's heart. Something happened spiritually to Manasseh's heart that when Hezekiah died and Manasseh became king, he sold himself out lock, stock, and barrel to idolatry in the most evil of ways. But it started with this insidious work that took place in Hezekiah's heart when he showed them everything. There isn't anything that I didn't show them. Isaiah knew what the answers were when he asked the questions. But he asked the questions so that the heart of Hezekiah would be revealed. There's nothing that I did not show them. I took them everywhere in my palace. I took them everywhere and showed them everything. Again, Hezekiah's pride. And then his answer almost defies belief, doesn't it? How could Hezekiah respond with something so callous? When Isaiah gave his words of judgment, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty, the time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will also be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And Hezekiah thinks in his heart, there will be peace and security in my lifetime. In other words, I don't care what happens to anyone else. I'll have peace. I don't care what threats they face. I'll have peace. That same propensity for sin is in the heart of everyone. That same ability to be so selfish is even in every believer. For us to feel a way and then to act in a way that is the opposite of how we have been, who we have been known to be, how we have walked with God. Paul deeply feels the conflict that this produces in him. And he said, O wretched man that I am, what I don't want to do, I do. What I know I should do, I don't do. There is this war within my members. Jesus said to his disciples, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. In Psalm 55, the psalmist describes what he is experiencing with a number of descriptions. My thoughts trouble me, and I am distraught. 
My heart is in anguish within me. Fear and trembling have beset me. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You and I need those words of Jesus, don't we? We are so susceptible like the psalmist to having troubled hearts, to being afraid. It is part of our humanity. It goes back to Adam and Eve, the sense of vulnerability, of exposure, the sense of threat and fear. The word trouble comes from terrasso, and it means to agitate with fear, terrify, put in consternation. Isn't that what fear does? It terrifies. It puts us in consternation. It means to agitate with grief or anxiety. To agitate with doubt or uncertainty. So don't let your hearts be troubled, Jesus is saying. Don't let them be agitated. Don't let them be agitated with fear, with grief. Don't let your hearts be agitated with anxiety, agitated with doubt or uncertainty. It is the opposite of peace. The word for peace that Jesus uses here means tranquility, quietness. The word that is used for troubled here is also the word that was used to describe what took place at the pool where Jesus found the man who had been laying there for 38 years. And periodically, the angel would come and trouble the waters. They would roil. And whoever made it in was healed. That's what this word trouble means. All the rest of the time, the waters of the pool were flat as a sheet of glass, tranquil. The angel would come and they would roil. Jesus is saying, don't let your hearts be stirred up. Don't let them be agitated. Feelings of fear, consternation, grief, anxiety, doubt, uncertainty. The word for afraid means to be timid, to be in fear. Don't let your hearts be agitated and do not be timid, be in fear. This particularly has to do with that sense of threat, of danger. How do I react in the face of a threat? How do I respond to a sense of danger? What is interesting is the way that this develops. It comes from a root that means 
dread. To be timid, that is faithlessness. So when you and I are afraid, ultimately the Word of God is telling us there is faithlessness. We are faithless at that moment. Later on in the evening, when they come to arrest Jesus, when Peter stands there in the courtyard, how will the disciples respond? With faith? With courage? No. They will be faithless in that moment. Jesus has told them numerous times what is going to happen when he goes to Jerusalem, why they are going to Jerusalem. I will be crucified at the hands of the chief priest, but on the third day I will rise again. And the third day, where do we find them? We find them in fear. Do they have faith in the promise that Jesus has given them? No, their circumstances and their perceptions have overtaken them so that they have no faith in what Jesus has said. They are only ruled, only aware of how vulnerable they are. So like Adam, we try to find an answer for our nakedness, our sense of vulnerability, for that which causes us fear. But the first lesson that the Lord God taught fallen humanity is that only He can adequately address our loss of peace. So, when Adam and Eve realized that they were naked, exposed, vulnerable, shameful, what did they do? They sewed together fig leaves. Was that enough? Was that an answer that covered their nakedness and covered their vulnerability? No. God needed to cover it. And so he killed an animal, skinned out that animal, and clothed them with the skins of that sacrifice. Only he can adequately address our loss of peace. Think about our, our attempts at peace. The peace that the world gives what are some of its characteristics? Well, for one, it's temporary, isn't it? It's temporary and it's unsustainable. For there always seems to be something that, that threatens it. Our attempts at peace don't answer all of our questions. It's almost like the game whack-a-mole. Another fear pops up. Something else that we thought about. What if this? And what if that? And it becomes simply 
unsustainable, so temporary. It's partial. And what I mean by partial is that our peace is often based on something in particular, like health, having enough of this resource, this circumstance being taken care of. But that kind of peace is not comprehensive. A partial peace will never be sufficient. The peace that the world gives is also unsecured and unguaranteed. We think that we have guaranteed it. We think that we have all of the factors in place, as the Allies did after World War I, that will prevent the aggressor from ever again threatening. And yet, in reality, our human attempts at peace can only produce something that is unsecured and unguaranteed. Our attempts at peace are also changeable. They are dependent upon certain factors. And those factors always include things that are beyond our ability, people that we can't control, circumstances that we can't control. And our attempts at peace are always shallow, like Adam's fig leaves. They don't really get to the heart of the issue. And so we think that we've done something to gain peace, only to find that it's easily affected by something else. It's easily diminished. The bottom line is that we endeavor to experience peace on a human level when the issues affecting it are spiritual, not human. And as we saw from our word study, at the heart of any loss of peace, is faithlessness. It depends on every factor, every party, maintaining faith. So, what happened as the 20s went on? While America was experiencing great prosperity, enjoying themselves before the Depression came, Japan was building its fleets and invading China. Hitler was gaining power and beginning to build his Nazi party. Peace depends on everyone being faithful. It depends on circumstances going just the way that we want them to go. It depends on our heart being able to stay in a certain place. But as we've already seen, 
Our hearts are unpredictable. And there is a spiritual and anti-peace dynamic at work within us. Something or someone along the way breaks faith. There are circumstances that don't remain faithful to our vision of peace. People who don't remain faithful. Again, at the heart of any loss of peace is faithlessness. And the only answer for faithlessness is a work of faith. Jesus has already said to his disciples, You believe in God, believe also in me. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Now he says to them, My peace I give to you. It is not as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Again, as we've already said, as the night goes on, they are going to lose faith. They needed to learn, and they will learn, to truly have faith in Jesus. Any peace that the world gives to you and I is going to be as we've characterized it here. And ultimately, we will experience, as Adam and Eve did, the impact of our faithlessness, the loss of peace, the sense of threat and vulnerability, of shame and exposure, of inadequacy, fear, turmoil, disorder. Jesus wants to do a work of faith in our hearts so that we can experience the peace that he offers. And so next week as we continue this study, we're going to be looking at how do we experience the peace of Jesus? How do we deal with this anti-peace dynamic that is at work within us? This faithlessness, such as Paul was talking about. How do we really experience what Jesus wants to give us in all of its fullness? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that is in your word, the clarity that it gives to us, the understanding that I find concerning my own heart, my ways, my responses, my deep need of you. Father, as we navigate this world that is becoming increasingly unpeaceful, when your word declares that the time will come when people's hearts are failing them for fear, you are saying to us, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Lord, we don't want to be ruled by something within us that is faithless, that leads to a loss of peace, 
We want to gain that place that you are offering to us, Jesus. And so we submit our hearts to you to do a work, Father, that only you can do. We don't want our fig leaves. We want the Prince of Peace. We pray that the peace of Christ will rule in each of our hearts. Holy Spirit, continue to cause your word to shape and transform us so that we experience the peace of Christ at work within us. In the name of Jesus, we pray tonight. Amen. Amen.